0: Welcome to Hat and Around. I am Leanne Frederick, and this is my international journey with hats and about millinery. Today, I have a real treat my first personal Hat and Around interview with an amazing woman who is a theatrical hatter. You may not know her by name, but you've certainly seen her work in movies such as Harry Potter and The Iron Lady. She has designed and manufactured for Laura Ashley. And she is a much-loved hatting teacher in London. She is also a dynamic storyteller, so I've done very little editing to this interview, but I have made extensive show notes. Without further delay, I'd like to introduce Jane Smith.
1: Can you tell me a little bit how you got started in the hat world? Um, my father was a production manager in the film industry and I went to him and said I want to be in films and he said start at the bottom so I went and worked uh, in a costumier. Um, I went into the costumier and the uh, person I was going to see in the women's ha- uh, department wasn't there and I was taken around by um, in fact the man that my father knew there Um and he took me down to the stockroom and there, there were lots of little blouses there with enamel buttons and beautiful things and he said, oh, just just have a look around and see what you think and I went and I couldn't believe my eyes everything was very beautiful and I went back to him and he said, you like it? so I said, um, oh yes, he said oh, okay, we'll start on Monday oh my <laughs> 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 and, and I started, and I was there for about literally a month. It, it was sort of three or four weeks, five weeks maybe. And he came down to the Stockholm, and they were doing a um, big film for uh, with Genevieve Buchold and Richard Burton called Anne of a Thousand Days. And they wanted a little tiny. Um, it was about Anne Boleyn, and they wanted a little tiny French hood, little headdress for her double she wasn't going to do the dancing and I made it and apparently he went back to the showroom and said look what we've got in the stockroom and I started making hats and I didn't stop and I did never I'd never looked at period hats before but um hardly at all but I'd done sculpture at art school and I was had been living with a sculpture and I I had a big I had a fairly easy three D concept. I, it wasn't difficult for me to make them in the round. And I was surrounded by period hats in the costume. It was Ellen H. Nathan in Drury Lane. And it was absolutely fabulous. I was there for three and a half years. And I made all kinds of hats. Things like I did stuff for Two Swords, who had had costumes made there. I made um stuff for Doily Cart, and a lot of uh, films which were... I did small scenes in the films. I did one... The very first one I did was with Maggie Furze Designing, um, and it was a film with Albert Finney called Scrooge, and I made a lot of bonnets that were round the edge of a cricket field. I think blink and you miss them. And the bonnets were... (laughs) The bonnets were covered with... Beautiful little spriggy liberty prints. Oh, nice! And they were—I made them so solidly that when I, when Nathan's was taken over by Berman's, um, quite a few years later, I went to see the woman that was in charge of us when we were in the in the ladies' showroom, and she said, "I've got something to show you." And she took me down to the bins where the bonnets were, and my bonnets were still there, doing service because they were so oh, solidly wow. made. They were like iron, but they were—they were, they were good shapes. They were—it was—I don't know what Scrooge was done. I suppose it's about kind of 1830, something like that. So they had quite big brims and sort of little crowns. Well, that's hard to maintain with the big brims. Yeah, Those but they were—they were cast iron, buckram, and wire. And <laughs> they were really—and and another one I did, which was I, my first sort of um, film where. I was given a bit of leeway. Was um, Ken Russell was doing um, The Music Lovers with Richard Chamberlain. and um, I was, uh, Shirley Russell, the fantastic designer, his wife, was doing the costumes. And one of the girls in the... I was still in the stockroom. They kept me in the stockroom for nearly the whole time I was there because they didn't want me to come up and get distracted and stop making hats. Um, and uh, I... I did all the little straws they had he had a scene where um it was Glenda Jackson was playing was the lead, and they had a scene where there were a lot of little girls and and people running through the woods in these beautiful white frocks right white right dresses, and I did all the straw hats and the little with little flowers and kind of streamers. They were very pretty it's still in the movie it was still in the hadn't been cut um and I did, I worked with uh, really interesting designers, like there's one called David Walker who's did, really well known for opera. And there was a film with Sarah Miles called Lady Caroline Lamb. And I did, there was Coral Brown was in it, and I made some tiaras which were with, they had beautiful he did these beautiful designs with tiaras with cameos all the way around different graded size cameos and I bought these revolting brooches and sort of painted them down and made them look like old cameos and David taught me a hell of a lot about how much to leave in how much to take out I was kind of fiddling around with it. he said don't do that don't do that just make it simple the shapes will do what you want them to do if you leave them. You know, you don't have to kind of do real... You're not doing real jewellery. You're doing something that's going to be seen from away. Even though it's not like theatre where it's actually going to be seen 20 feet away. Film is different, but they're still... They don't need the kind of detail that I wanted to put into them. Another thing I did was there was a designer at the BBC called Joyce Hammond. I think she's dead now, but um, she couldn't. She wasn't satisfied. They had a resident hatter at, at, who did a lot of the hats at, at Nathan's, and I was starting to take her place in a way. And and she didn't uh, Joyce didn't like anything that um, had been made for the for her show. I think it was for something called Hazan, with it had Prue Scales in it, and I can't remember who else was in it. But um, they asked me to make some little tiny crowns that were meant to be very old and a little tiny fez that, uh, that was sort of decorated. And I made this little fez and did tiny beaded trees on it, like little peach trees. And I scrubbed it down with a toothbrush and black boot polish and made it look as if it had just been dug up. and the the crown again it was so solid it was still going strong when I you know when I left three and a half years later it it was let out for all sorts of things and the crown had a little sort of top on it like a bead upturned upturned shape and it had detailed I did everything with gold gimp just wound it round and back and forth and and that was very and she absolutely loved them so that was another big plus in my hat making that I could do these sort of Slightly stagey crowns, but I could also do straw hats, and I could also do bonnets, and I could also do. I hadn't done toppers or men's by that time, but Doily Cart used to have things like legal hats. I can remember doing um boards. Did, did you do any training? Did you no, take any classes? No, I, I was just... getting, there. Was there was a millinery class at LCF? And London College of Fashion in John Prince's Street, as it was then, it's moved now. But, and I remember the girls in the and all my you know the girls at night said, don't go, don't get, don't go and train. You'll they'll turn you into a hatter. You know they'll turn you into a millinery maker. And they wanted me to keep the fact that I looked at everything very fresh. You know, I, I'd never sort of each hat I'd done I'd never done before, and that it's still like that. 40 years later, it's still like that. I still don't approach things the same way. And um, I, so I never went. I never went. And the, I had nightmare moments. I mean, I was doing... I did London Assurance, which um, the RFC were down the road at the Aldwych. That was their resident home then. And they were doing London Assurance with um, Judy Dench and... Um, I can't remember who was playing the male lead, but she had a little straw, well, quite a big, wide straw. I think they called a skimmer. And I had a straw, which I'd bought, and I had to pull it out, and I didn't know how to make it bigger. And I was there, I can remember at night, it was about four in the morning, and it was so damp and steamy, and it was on the ironing board, and it suddenly pulled out. And And I suddenly thought, ah! this is how you know this is how you make them bigger and I was pulling on the straw and it just went bigger and bigger and the, the the top the crown disappeared because I was pulling the the crown into the brim areas as it were by pulling it out and put you know and it just suddenly worked and that was that was for Judy in you know that was the first hat I made for her I've made her hat since quite a few but oh wow and well, that's
0: exciting. <laughs> so you had an aha moment, An well, you? Aha you?
1: moment in the four in the morning. Which <laughs> I have continued to work all night for years and years and years. I love four in the morning. Four in the morning is lovely, fresh, you know, thinking time. Nothing, no phone ringing, and you know you've got the world service on, which is absolutely wonderful. It comes from all over the world. The all the all the um, journalists, you know, are 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 sort of from where the country where they're reporting. You haven't got some old BBC man there. You've got a BBC man from you know, from Turkey when he's talking about Turkey and it's just the most wonderful thing for working to.
0: Oh
1: that's it. So it's called the World Service? It's called the World Service, yes. it's, oh, I'm have it, to try that. it's and that's why I have a, a little ship on my door, my knocker, oh, is oh. because when it changes over from Radio Four to the World Service, they play sailing by. So and that's why you have a ship on I have a little ship, <laughs> ship on my knocker, yes, yeah, on my door.
0: Oh, things are starting to connect. <laughs> so where did you go? At some point you went from working in the stockroom basement. Yes, I eventually and- made
1: it into the showroom and did a few things. But I was mostly making hats by this time. I was working night and day. And then something extraordinary happened, which was one of the women that came, one of the girls that came in, from, it was, you did a lot of commercials as well, and she was getting costumes for a commercial. And she suddenly said to me, Jane, will you make me a little boy's Edwardian hat? And I said, what it's for? And she designed for Laura Ashley. Mm -hmm. And she designed those leg of mutton sleeves and those beautiful... So Laura liked sort of... She liked that sort of Edwardian feel, and she designed all these skirts that went down to the ground. They became hugely fashionable. And Helen Messenger was her name, and she said... um, come and meet Laura and let's talk about you doing some hats because she took these hats to Laura, who absolutely loved these little boys. They have the, You remember they used to have these flyaway hats, like really big brims. You see them on the beach and things when little tiny children used to wear these great big straws. It's, I mean, in a sense we keep the sun off them, but in fact they used to have flyaway brims. <laughs> and I went and met Laura and Bernard Ashley and she, was, she absolutely loved them. She said, oh, let's do boaters with you know, with poppies and cornflowers and roses on them. So we said, fine. So she had Paris, Shrewsbury, Edinburgh, and and Fulham Road. It was very early on. Wow. And, um, in fact, I wish I had a photograph of her, because she was behind the till once in Fulham Road. I wish I'd had that (laughs) picture then. Um, And I made these little boaters in my flat, and they... Selling like hot cakes. I couldn't make them fast enough. And they were, I wish, again, I wish I had pictures because they used to be all over the bed, all over the chairs, all over the floor. I couldn't make them fast. And I have got girls working for me. I had about three friends working for me. And um, we used to just stitch and stitch and stitch. And I um, I got more and more work until in the end, um, I was married then. And we had, we, um, had to find a workshop. So we found this uh, workshop that was um, and the, the guy was a butcher and he'd done a midnight flick um, and it was owned by Lambeth and we rented it for probably a few quid I mean we're talking three or four quid and we were going to be there for about either six months and we were there I think for three years <laughs> and um, and and they were demolishing this this little row of shops and they started at one end and The mice, (laughs) in each shop, came And we had a grocer's next to us. I mean, this is going ahead of me a little bit. And then when the grocer's went, all the mice came into our place. (gasps) And and we had a couple of cats in there. So they killed everything off. It was terribly funny. There were dead mice everywhere the next day. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, But that's where I did my first movie on my own without being in a costume yet. I mean, we've left out the bit that when I left Nathan's... um, one of my sort of idols in in hat-making theatre, hat-making world, was Patty Pope. And she was in Nathan's one day. She'd done a whole load of stuff for a film one day. And she was delivering, and she said, I know where you'd like to work, Jane. Why don't you go and work at Glyndebourne? So I applied to Glyndebourne, uh, to work in the props, not in the wardrobe. They didn't have a millinery place, didn't have a hat place so Glenbourne is like a costuming it's, shop no, something? Glenborn's uh, an opera house down in Sussex Oh, okay. founded in the 30s, 1935 I think, or 32 and it had this incredible tradition where they'd have uh, people had to dress up in evening clothes and they had a big interval in between at the middle of the opera, where everyone had a, a supper out on the lawn oh. it was all very grand, and very beautiful beautiful, beautiful house beautiful, tiny little opera house uh, with the house next door. And we, you stayed in the huts, and we lived in the huts. And we went very early this year. They were doing Enfuren, um, Mozart, Enfuren, and then they did uh, finished up with um, Verdi, Macbeth. And in between, they had um, Ulysses, which is Verdi, who wrote the first operas. And it was the music. I'd never listened to opera before. And it was absolutely sensational. <laughs> Raymond Lepard came down, and he'd introduced Glyndebourne to Monteverdi. And it was the second year they'd done, they did Pulpera the first year, and the second year we did Ulysses. And so they made Armour. And so when I went I went down there to see Annabelle um, who very, uh, quite freakishly, had been to the same school as me, Okay, And it was very odd, it was very odd and I'd never done props before and she said, she just said, okay, come down and I went down, I was terribly, terribly nervous and she said, don't be nervous, I'll show you what to do and I just fell into it like a duck to water, I mean the smell of the place, the wood, you know, the glues and everything, it was absolutely gorgeous. And when I think of it now, health and safety, we had the most enormous (laughs) rack of gas, gas rings, about six gas rings where we used to dry things, you know, chemicals up above it, you know, on sort of drying lines. And they wanted helmets. And I'd never done helmets before. And Annabelle had done loads. And I said, oh, I can do a helmet. Let let me do a helmet. And we mold, we made, I carved, well, I molded. A beautiful Greek egg-shaped helmet. They're just wonderful. Out of leather. I know Out we did it. With the mold. This is the mold, so that I could block the felt over it. We did oh, the block with felt okay. and then saturated them with gel coat. And the top layer of the gel coat, which is like the resin from fiberglass resin, you 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 filled the gel coat with a filler. So, like for the brass, for the gold ones, you did like a brass filler, and for the silver helmets, you had aluminium filler. Okay. And we. And I made this, this egg, which Annabel concocted a lot, because I wanted to be able to pin into it, you know, like you do with felts, when you're blocking a felt. So she, we, she made this wonderful mixture of sawdust and glue. I think she used kind of wood glue or something, so it was <laughs> lovely and hard, and I, and they could sand it down easily, you know. It was okay. A, it was a lovely beast. And I blocked helmets on it, and I did all the ones for the so I did one for Benjamin Luxon and... We did Minerva. Benjamin Luxon was the lead. He was Ulysses. And then we had Minerva. Two of the gods were flying and they had these these beautiful helmets on. Because, I say beautiful, I mean, they were, they were a really good Greek shape. And you do the front, you know, you do like a mask with the eye holes in it, which okay. is actually on the helmet. So the whole helmet sits on the top of your head. And the mask, the front of the helmet, is in fact on your forehead almost. Okay. You know how they sit that's at the back. Yeah, more. and then they had a little, a little sort of thing for an ostrich feather to stick in that's in the back. I just, had, I just had such a wonderful time and I learned. I learned, I became completely in love with helmets after that. I'm still in love with helmets. Ah. I absolutely adore them. I've done quite a few shows where I've done helmets in in the past. The most peculiar one was something called a Carver that was in the Victoria Palace. It was very odd. Um, it, didn't, it died. It didn't last very long. Um, and so I had a fantastic time at Glyndebourne. And then while I was at Glyndebourne, um, I'd been friends with Frances Rowe, who was the wardrobe mistress at the RSC when, when at the Aldwych, and she sort of went she was great friends with the guy who ran the props at the opera house so she said to uh, it was um i can't remember his name now but um she said um if you don't employ jane i'll never speak to you again kind of thing you know kind of jokingly (laughs) so (laughs) that's helpful that's a good reference (laughs) So, and, and I didn't, I wasn't that, I was not, I was very inexperienced. The one season um, at Glyndebourne lasted about seven months. I mean, the last opera was incredible. It was Oliver Messel's, um Macbeth. Verdi was, I mean, it was, it blew your mind. I'd never heard Verdi before. And the singers would start with, they'd come into the Opera House, into Glenbourne, and then they'd start with the piano, and then slowly the orchestra would join them. It was the most wonderful place for starting, you know, to hear about opera. And um, so I went to, um, I went to an interview with, um, oh, He's a lovely, lovely guy, I can't remember his name, who was running the props at the Opera House. And I was in the pub. We were in the Nags Head in Floral Street. Um, and the props was on the other side from the Opera House. And someone came up to him and said, Who's this? And he said, It's Jane Smith. She's going to come and work with us on Monday. And so I hardly got any sort of talk about time, about what my experience or anything. He just said, OK, yeah, you know, of course you can come and work with us. And it was excellent. Okay, it was that's an ba- easy interview. <laughs> it was fantastic, and um, we—I had a ball there. I was only, again. I was only there for a few months because he was living with one of th- a design assistant at the BBC, and I'd done lots for the BBC when I was at Nathan's at the Costumier. Um, but she was working on this big period serial called The Palaces. Um. And their hatter had fallen out with the designer, Oh. and she was looking for someone else who could come in and and work with him. He was a, he was he was Welsh, and so along with the Laura Ashley thing, which I was still doing at the same time. Oh, you so you're doing all the, the Laura time at the same time. Oh, wow. That's how I got to be called Jane the Hat, because as well as the well, it's a Welsh thing where you know, like you, you have the baker and you know Jane the Hat is just a sort of Welsh phrase so along with Laura Ashley I was with this Welsh designer at the BBC you see and he started calling me Jane the Hat because of Laura Ashley and um, no the whole time I was at Glyndebourne I was working on Laura Ashley Hats I would I would go home at six go and get the train home at six from Glyndebourne go in go to bed Get up at sort of about 11 or 12, work till about 5 in the morning on Law Ashley Hats, go back to Glanbourne and then work all day. And then I did that for months while I was there. So you don't require much sleep? I didn't, I don't really. I, I've, I don't, I still don't require that much. That's I,
0: amazing.
1: And I'm, I'm, I was then, I was completely driven. Um, if somebody wanted me to make something, I just said, Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. And I would make it <laughs> straight away. And and Laura's stuff the Ashley Laura Ashley's stuff was like that. I'd made box after box after box hats and it would just and I'd deliver them to Fulham Road and then they became more and more popular and we started doing I still was just doing summer straws. Um I'm just trying to think when it got more so. I think probably when I was at the Opera House, it was starting to grow a little bit big. And I started to have girls working for me because by that time I was in, I was in my first studio by then. OK. Um, I mean, the first film I did in the studio... Yes, I was in the studio by the time I went to the Opera House. Um, so the first studio... The, the first film I did on my own was Bugsy Malone. Which was fantastic. That was really sweet. It was, it was lots of dance girls in there. I did. We did little feathery hats. Yes, that was all done in the studio. That was all done in the workshop. By that time, was that here in Battersea? No. Funny enough, it was two streets away. So oh. it's, I've gone in a big circle, of you know what I the places I've worked, because the second place I was at the Opera House. I was at the Opera House for about six months I think. And then I got this big huge cereal because the BB I took a hat in. I took a hat in. I did a hat there's a gorgeous old actress. She's I think she's dead now as well, called Fabia Drake. And I did um a little cap in black lace with all sorts of bits. I had lots of bits and he gave me lots of bits. And used to, they were all based in Television Centre then on the third floor, the costume department was on the third floor at Television Centre. And it was, a, you know, Television Centre is just a big ring, a big circle. Okay. So you'd go round, you, you could walk round there and everyone would call out, you know, they'd say, Oh, come and see me about this. Oh, oh, Jane, come and, just when you've done that, come back and see me. And you'd go round, because <laughs> all their offices were kind of open <laughs> offices. So you do think, you know, some mothers do have a more, you know, kind of the two Ronnies. It was all sorts of stuff you'd get called in to do. And uh, Raymond Hughes was the designer for the palaces. And he took this, I took it in on a canvas dolly head, this little thing. And he he went round to all the, he went round to all the offices and said, look what I've got now. I've got a hatter, you know, da, da, da. And, and I did 24 episodes with him. And wow. in those days before before you know everything was done so quickly it took one and a half years to do you know to do all those episodes you think now they do they do a major movie in sort of 10 weeks wow it's astonishing how things have you know the way things it's have accelerated moved on. Really, so it's really it's amazing i can't believe sometimes how quickly they do things and uh, so that was a big adventure it was terribly successful I was worked off my feet. I was doing Laura Ashley on one side and seven principal hats a week for this series. So you must have, you had people working for you I at I had that people point, working for me by then all the time. Okay. And I did things, the variation of the things I did is astonishing. I mean, I did, I can remember we did a Brand Buds ad for uh, Kellogg's and you couldn't, they didn't, <laughs> they, they had town mice and country mice. And they didn't want the mice to have tails because they thought the brown buds looked like mouse droppings. Would make people think. <laughs> so we couldn't. They didn't have tails. They were sort of blunt. <laughs> blunt mice. Blunt mice. But um, that was a lovely job. And um, and I made. I used. You know. I used a fur coat, chopped up old charity shop fur coat for their heads. And that's when I came across the other magic thing you use in props, which is vac forming. So you'd vac form. I moulded the one the house, mouse's head, and then you get it vac formed on one side and vac formed on the other side, and you glue the two vac forms together, and there's your mouse's head. So vac like in vacuum? Vacuum. Form. What happens is it's on a heated bed, and you have a sort of thick plastic over a heated bed, and then air, all the air, they the the plastic melts over your mold which is on this heated bed and then the air is sucked out with so there's the it's it's completely clinging to the mold mold. absolutely sort of every cranny and then so you can't have undercuts because you can't get it off oh okay that's a good thing to know yeah so you have so if you've got lots of undercuts like a whole head you then have to do it in two halves. So you slice it over the nose, over the forehead, and down the back of the neck, and then you do two oh, halves that. Oh, so you, like you do that. a left and a right. A left and a right head, oh, okay. yeah. And then so we did that. We did. I did three mice, and then I had. They they were dressed. They were clothed. So we had. Um, um, Mike and Rosie Compton, who made the made the costumes for them, who are fabulous costume makers. And they do they do mannequins and things. They do a lot of museum tableaus and things. I've worked with them quite a lot, making hats for their tableaus. And that so that was in that workshop. So um, I made I got so quick at doing bonnets and little hats. By the time we started early, and then I think the series I think the, the the story finished sort of quite late on. It's sort of about 1880s. And I could start a hat doing the buckram and the silk and I could order a cab and finish it, you know, before the cab arrived, you know. <laughs> wow. It just got so daft. But it was so exciting because doing principles like that, you know, was really, really good.
0: So principles being the key performers, Principles in the... being
1: the lead performers okay. in, the, in the, the film or the show. I didn't do so much theatre then. Funnily enough, I was doing a lot more commercials and small films and things. Um, but mostly, then um, my theatre and film stuff. I did Madame Tussauds. I kept doing Madame Tussauds. I, I did a complete set of Henry's wives that were in the that were in the, inside the front door when he walked into Tussauds in those days in Baker Street. I did lots of other things for Tussauds. I did stuff for the. Um, for the uh, Chamber of Horrors. And I remember I did a hat for the guy that is it, um, who was caught by radio. He was on ship. He was the first criminal to be caught by by radio message. And his wife was wearing a great big hat. She was Edward. I can't remember. Oh, it was Crippen. Was it Crippen who was caught on board ship? Anyway, and he, uh, and it was for the Chamber of Horrors he was down with all the murderers. And and we got the back head the hat back to refurbish and it had a sucking right hole in the front where they'd nailed it to the waxwork <gasps> because the Chamber of Horrors was very dark in those days and people just used to nick things and the hats was one of the first things to go. <laughs> so they used to have to nail them to their heads to, to, so that they couldn't get pinched. Um, was it, well, they
0: had to do it in the front? No, surely they I didn't. I don't know, them. it was
1: just a twang. <laughs> And the one thing that used to get stolen all the time was the little tiny crown, Victoria's little tiny mini crown. It used to be sold, stolen regularly, but I mean, not that regularly. But it was always being stolen. Um, so anyway, so to people, things like to swords was carrying on, but I started to stop. Uh, well, I started to do more and more law Ashley. They were opening up. They had Geneva. They had Holland, they had two in Holland, they had Amsterdam, three in Holland, they had Amsterdam, The Hague, and um, U- Utrecht, they had Paris, they had um, quite a few, they had, what else they had, the Geneva, I can't remember, they had another one, and we were just, we couldn't make enough hats, it was, I just was churning out Laura Ashley, Laura Ashley, Laura Ashley, Laura Ashley, <clears throat> and it got bigger and bigger. And then they started doing seasons. So it, we didn't do felts at first, but I, the bridal, we did sort of garlands and, and, and um, parasols um, and loads and loads and loads of straws, loads of straws. And then we started doing felts, but that a little bit later on. But it got, it took over from my theatre work almost completely. I had some really nice girls working for me. Uh, uh, in those early days, and those, a couple of them stayed. One of them stayed with me for twenty years. Wow! And she was the one I sold my business to at the end. She had to. The, the, I sold my business to the girls who were working for me at the time, and she was one of them. And she's still going strong. She's a very, very good hat maker, Tracy Mogard, who's um, got her little shop. She's changed it from James Straw Hats when I opened a shop and changed it to Harold and Hart in Rye High Street. She's there. Oh. She's a very, very good hatter indeed. She came to me when she was 19.
0: Wow. Now, Harold
1: and Hart, I just read in... They're very good hatters. They've been going since here. They did they um, were next door. The, the big straw that Andy McDowell wore Yeah, they, in... that was there When I left, When they, they, the first film they did was... Lindy Hemmings was in designing for four Weddings and a Funeral. Okay. And they did Andy McDowell's big black hat that she wears at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, because I saw, and they her, also, saw it on the web. They yeah, had a and they also hired out all the, practically all the hats in the shop to you know for the wedding guests. <laughs> oh, so makes it sense. was a good big movie for them. The new, the new workshop. Then I moved out of this workshop in Battersea and into uh, Lambeth Council, uh, drew the line and said that we had to move. And we desperately looking around for somewhere and found Lambeth Council again gave us one in um Railton Road in Brixton, it used to be called the front line and we had three floors of this very beautiful old shop that had a pine the the ground floor was completely lined with pine panels and it was beautiful upstairs it was very big and Laura Ashley then took over my life and we took over i did Non-stop, I did four collect- three collections at first, then four collections, then five collections, designing and manufacturing all the hats that they sold. And at, this, uh, at the beginning of getting so big, I had to go to Luton because I couldn't make them myself anymore. We'd started, I'd started going to Luton and finding the wholesalers where we could buy straws. And I started buying different straws and I got to know William Fisher, the company William Fisher, very well. And uh, the gentleman in there was very, very helpful. And he used to tell me where everything came from and how it was made. And I used all different um, straws for different jobs. And I got to know a lot about what how straws were made and how they looked when different fibres were used. And then I had to find someone to block them. Uh, The hat trade was one of these closed industries where everyone imagines you're going to steal their their work from them so Mm -hmm. they won't let you in. So it took quite a long time to find someone who would block small amounts because we were a small company and uh, that's when I became Jane Smith Straw Hats. I couldn't be Jane Smith Hats because there was one of those in America. So I had to be Jane Smith Straw Hats, which suited me fine. And, I mean, I decided to call myself James and Straw Hats. And then um, we found a blocker who would do small quantities because they were used to doing sort of hundreds of dozen and they could only make money. The hat industry was undercharging and they went down a lot in... A lot of them nearly died. I was blocking by this time in 72. I met Laura in 72 and then sort of a few years later I was in the hat trade proper... And it was dying all around me, huge factories. We went to a factory in, in London where we had, we had a, a car with, with no roof, what do you call it, a convertible. We filled it with blocks from this factory for three, <gasps> £3.50 and the bumper was touching the road um, because the factory, the whole place was closing. That's where I got the foundation of the hat blocks that when I had my shop was the foundation of what we used to use. Wow. And they were loads and loads. A lot of them were really old-fashioned, but loads of them were very usable. I had, load, I had loads of domes of all different sizes, you know, just from a vast factory that couldn't afford to be in London anymore. And wasn't. it was called J. Cole, and it was closing down. And industry was closing down around us. And the reason, one of the reasons, my theory is that it was it was so undercharged. It never charged enough for blocking. It never charged enough for its for its wholesale goods, and um, it had been using it had been running on empty for a long time. You never had designers in Luton. You never had you, the block makers that supplied all the stores used to use the old blocks. Just from years past, that's why when I first opened my shop, everyone used to come in saying, oh, I can't wear hats, nothing fits me. And the reason is the blockers were still using 50s shapes that were too small, and they were designed to go around perms. And, you know, the the period had changed, and they hadn't changed. There was no, there was uh, me and someone else who went in. We were the first designers that went in there, and started saying, make them this big, make them that big, I want this shape, I want that shape. And we were, not the very first, obviously, but we were using, we were changing the look of hats that people wore quite dramatically. Um, You know, I was doing shapes that were 1920s-looking, Edwardian. Um, I could do them standing on my head, and and they were so popular, Um, we couldn't... uh, you know, they they were they were opening up all over, you know, all over the world. Laura Ashley was sort of getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I was... stopped doing theatre hats altogether. And that went on until about... I decide I had to move out of Brixton. I think um, Lambeth called the tune again and said... Um, you must go, and we'd be pay, paying eight pounds a week for this for three floors. for Eight, this, pounds, eight pounds a week. week, and in the middle of that was the riots in '82, oh. which were absolutely horrendous. But they were sort—they weren't black and white riots. They were actually riots against the police, who were treating everybody abominably. And we had. We were right at the far end of Relton Road, and it started at the beginning of Railton Road. And um, I can remember the sort of uh, the stones being thrown. You could see the stones. You could see this body of people coming up the road, and um, with the stones going over the top. And then they discovered that the shields the police were holding were flammable, and so they couldn't use them anymore. But at the at the very first night it started when this huge big pub. Was went up in flames. It was a very racist pub. It was a horrible place. No one was sorry. It was going up in flames. I shouldn't say that probably. Um, but um, and then and I can remember. And um, I wanted to get into. I don't think my car was working. And I wanted to get into Brixton. And there were police cars bombing down past my flat. And I wanted to run into the road and say, "Take me with you. No, take me in. Take me in, so I can go and see if my place is okay." And my my husband at the time, he rang, he rang this guy that was opposite us. And this this fireman picked up the phone and he said, just tell, just tell me, is my place on fire over the road? Mm. And the, the fireman said, look, I can't look out the window, mate. I'm trying to put a fire out here. But <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> he answered the phone. <laughs> he answered the phone. And all this guy's record collection was was ruined. Oh. But he gave me one record that's got the corner burnt off. It's upstairs in a frame. And it says never letting go. And it's a frame. And it's a frame from his collection. He gave it to me because it had a little girl on the cover with a beautiful straw hat on it. Aww. But we didn't have any damage. The place two doors down from us, the post office burned to the ground and apparently they were out in the middle of the road hacking at the safe trying to get it open and they couldn't get it open. Oh my goodness. But it was a fairly horrendous time. But the the the, the riots were it was it was not a game. We were more or less black and white, black and white, all the way down the road, like alternate. And we were all great friends. We were all neighbours together. And it was, it was a terrible time. But the police were so aggressive and fierce with everybody. You know, they would arrest people on sight. There was a group of uh, guys on an opposite corner that they arrested just because they were black, pretty much. And they bundled them into the back of a black Mariah and they got them to the police station and said, now, who are you? And he was a local councillor. Oh. You know, you it, was so, even... it got so daft, you know. It got so uh-huh. sort of peculiar. Anyway, I needed... I had to get out. When when I split from my husband and, and he went back up to North Wales, I needed to get out of Brixton. It was a little bit rough there. And I was, I was sort of in the middle of it all, really. And I was looking desperately for somewhere else. And um, I, went, I came down uh, this street, St. Philip Street, and I went down there because I was working for Two Swords, um, doing another set of the Queen's, the Henry's Queen's, and the jeweller for Two Swords lived down the middle of St. Philip Street. And I walked past this little shop that had to let Oh. And the whole street was Peabody. Okay, that's that is that's a the Peabody company, Trust. Uh, it's trust. one of these. Yes, it's one of these um, uh, trusts that that they, they he built houses for workers, and the whole of St Philip Street, which was built in 1860, was had been Peabody for many years. And um, I sort of applied to them to come to this little place, and. They said yes, and they—you had to have solid gold references, you know, because they were very careful. They didn't want people to exploit them. And I can remember I had a lovely letter from my sister when we were all moved in, and he said, "Here's a nice bit of news for you to uh, go to sleep on, Jane. The rent is two thousand a year."
0: <laughs> and that at that point, after you've been doing eight a month, was that it, seemed like a lot? <laughs> it seemed like a lot. Yes, and
1: it was—it was just wonderful. And we had—we had. We had Loads of my friends came and helped me move, and we had loads of stuff in in Railton Road, and it all had to fit into this smaller building. But we managed it, and the big, huge work table, I had to go in through the window up on the first floor. Oh, my. Because the shop area wasn't fit to work in. It was too too derelict downstairs, and it had a big shop window. And the strangest thing of all is we didn't really know, you know, I didn't really know what we were going to do down there, so shop what can we do with a shop so then we thought hat shop you yes. <laughs> know <laughs> open a hat shop and so i had a sign painted james with straw hats because i've still got downstairs here and um we opened the shop and we were still doing Laura ashley and um nobody turned up i sent invites to all sorts of people but nobody turned up except the fashion editor of vogue and the fashion editor of Brides Magazine. Wow. And it was That's in, not bad for And her. it was incredible. <laughs> and I had all my friends, you know, the bikes outside were sort of three deep. And um, we had a just, it was a lovely, lovely day opening the shop. And I'd got a friend of mine to build me beautiful shelves. And then I had the front window sort of, it was very, it was very sort of, it wasn't fashion. It was just very sort of nice hats. And it was very um, period looking. And there were lots of sort of 20s things. And
0: So is this the first time you start selling retail? Then? Yes,
1: that was the first time I was ready retail. Oh, okay. And then, um, and then I got very exhausted. And I couldn't think of another hat to do for Laura's shop, for the business for Laura. And I, I decided to stop. She needed a new hatter. I needed to stop doing it. I couldn't. There were five collections a year. And also, you had to do it a year and a half in advance. <laughs> you know, the fashion world had changed completely. And Laura, actually, she hadn't died before that. She died after that. But So I'd done 14 years, really hard slog, and become very successful. And I'd had a lot of publicity in the magazines, and they all knew who I was, which is how my shop just about took off, because... I wasn't when you're working for a, a big named um, person like Laura Ashley. You people assume that she does all the designing, so you don't get credit for designing her stuff. So um, I I wasn't credited in the shop, but I was credited in the magazines when I did fashion shoots for them, because they knew me through the house. So the labels didn't say labels Jane didn't, Smith for no, Laura Ashley. No, absolutely it not. no, just, Laura, just Ashley. Laura Ashley inside. But of course, the magazines. Then I did stuff for Honey. I mean, that's defunct now, but there's various, and Marie Claire and various big magazines all knew, uh, you know, who I was. And so then when the shop opened, um, it took about, it took over a year, because I was in a tiny side street, to really take off Mm -hmm. and to get enough of a turnover. I think we were still doing Laura Ashley at the beginning. And it really was slow to take off. And then it just sort of went, and it was really exciting. We had all kinds of racingy people in there, Ascot people. <laughs> and the best ones were the Irish women that came, the Irish families that came over. And they wouldn't go to the races on the, with the same hat on twice. Mm. So they'd come in and they'd give us all sorts of dreadful things to make their hat you know, curtains, coats, Anything to make their hats out of so they look different from the time before.
0: <laughs> so you were doing couture, not just... No, know, not couture.
1: S- you can't I'll call you it can't. couture. I wasn't no. trained. I wasn't. Couture is very beautiful and specialised and everything's handmade. I wasn't like couture at all. Oh, okay. But I was contemporary, okay, if you like to call it anything. And it was very successful and we had all sorts. Of, I did Annie Lennox's wedding hat. I did, you know, there were all kinds of people that came in. The Duchess of Norfolk... Um, the Duchess of Kent's daughter-in-law. We did all sort, and I made about six hats for Sarah Ferguson before she was married, and including the, her first date with the Duke of York when she went to Ascot with Diana. And I was going to. I had the fashion editor of Vogue came in once. She was she was a lovely woman, Anna, Anna something or other. She was just she kept looking outside at her BMW, thinking it might get. no this this was in Brixton actually I'm going back a bit for her thinking it would be on four bricks No, she that's when Diana she said oh she came and she said I know who would like your hats this was in actually this was in Brixton it was in the other place and she said do me a box of stuff and and we sent it to the palace for Diana but she was having Harry so she stopped Uh all her her um Public engagement, so they never got. I don't, I don't know if she saw them, but we got it back anyway. So I kept the box for ages with Buckingham Palace written all over it. But <laughs> um, it was it was exciting, you know, that Absolutely. she might have seen them. Anyway, so she didn't get, but I did. Sarah's. I wasn't. I didn't meet Sarah actually, but um, I did quite a few hats for her outfit. She was starting to get. She was starting to get in the public eye, so she suddenly had a sort of tip-top designer. And did she have a stylist that would she had a did, stylist it... and I uh, first of all I worked with the stylist and then the designer who was okay. doing her clothes and they actually made her look pretty ghastly. She had a a really nice sort of rounded figure, you know, small waist, but not. She doesn't. She didn't have a sort of boyish figure like Diana, so she was sort of had terrible publicity because she, you know, she wasn't skinny. She was a she was a round so, shape. She, she right? was a round, She was a lovely, ordinary shape, you know. But she was just, she was just rounded shape, you know. She's got nice legs, and she just, but that didn't matter, you know. She wasn't skinny. Mm. Anyway, so she had a lot of flack, But um, I did that, and I did, I did all sorts of other people. Um, um, I made a hat for. We made a hat for Jimmy Mulville. I think of what I can't remember his name. Who was who became the Founder of Hattricks, which is a big uh, comedy. Oh, okay. I can't, you'd have to look that up to make sure I got his name right. Okay. Um, But lots of other, all sorts of people came in, and I'd have people that came back and back year after year. We had this beautiful little, I remember this Swedish uh, woman who's, I think she was a journalist, she came to London once a year in the spring, she used to come every year and buy a hat. And that happened quite a lot. And then, um, as well as me, I had a permanent sort of three or four girls upstairs that were making the hats all the time, one of which was Tracy Mogard, who, who bought the hat shop. Anyway, so I'd stopped doing theatre and film completely, and I was just doing that. Then I was working non-stop, non-stop, non-stop. I got very, very, very exhausted. And... Um, I had this strange man come into the shop. He took pictures of me. I think he worked for something like Horse and Hound or something like that. And he sent me this big A4 picture that he'd taken of me sitting in the shop behind the counter. And I got it in the envelope And I looked at it and I thought, who's that? And it was me. Oh. I looked terrible. My eyes were dead. I just... My hair was a mess. I looked absolutely dreadful. And I felt dreadful. And... I got to the point. I said, "I've got to stop, I've got to go away." And they said, "Go and write a book. Go and write a book about straw hats." <laughs> go, go away. Go and have six months off." So I just went in one day, and they all looked at me, and they said, "You're not coming back, are you?" And I said, "No, I'm not." And I saw, we made arrangements, and I sold the business, James Straw hats, to Tracy. And the two other girls that she went into partnership with the two other girls that were working for me at the time. Was this after? Did you take a six-month sabbatical? No, that was that was before all that. Oh, okay. And I just, I just, I just had to stop. I didn't want to make another hat as long as I lived. Oh, you were really done. I was really done. And instead of having a nervous breakdown, I left, sold the lot. All my dearest friends said, "You can't, you can't do that. No, you're well known. You're blah, 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 you know all that rubbish." And I said, it's done, it's done, I've done it. And it was heaven, it was total heaven. I rode around on the tops of the not on the tops of buses, looking at the sculpture. I went to Paris to see the Modigliani, the Degas. I went to Glasgow, the city of culture. I went up there for a week. I was going to all the cathedrals. I was looking at the sculpture non stop exhibition. I went to Edinburgh. I went all over the place. I was craving for stuff for me. I was hungry for, you know, sort of paintings and sculpture and everything. It's an incredible time, absolutely incredible time. Then I ran out of money.
0: <laughs> As one does. <laughs> As well, I
1: moved into here. I moved into where I am now. I sold my house. I bought a house. I sold that. I'd done this place, this place was a hollow shell that had been used by caterers. There was no bathroom, no kitchen. I'd done all that, i spent all my house money and I had nothing. And then I thought, oh, I'd better get a job. Because I ran completely out of money. My family thought I was completely nuts. And, but I'd, had, I'd recovered myself. I'd, I'd recovered myself and I was, I was back to Jane. And I started looking for work. <laughs> and when you're 50-odd, People think, oh, she must have gone bankrupt. You were a business. Oh, but why did you stop? Oh, you must have... What's happened? You've gone... Oh. They must have thought I was either mental or, you know, <laughs> they really treated you as if you were sort of a freak of some kind. And then I just wandered into the BBC shop at the top of the Strand that sold videos and books, you know, BBC Books it was called, underneath the World Service. And uh, I thought, World Service, how fab. And I walked in, this girl loved hats, the boss wasn't there, and she said, oh, I'll see what I can do. Meanwhile, I'd gone down to Glyndebourne, and uh, Jean Hunnysett was there, who's written a few books on cutting. She's dead now, too. And I said, what shall I do? And she said, teach. So I thought, ah, oh, where? And she said, well, ring up Janet Kent in Liverpool. She likes mad people like you. <laughs> and, and I, I, I ran down <laughs> Janet up, and she said, oh, all right, um, yeah, that would be nice. I haven't got anything at the moment. It's not right, quite the right, right time. I'll see what I can do. And I went away for, on a holiday. I had a small holiday. Um, and I came back, and there was a job on the map from the World Service, and Janet said, come next February. Oh. So I suddenly, it, things were turning around. I went in, and I worked in the shop. I like working in shops. And I like, you know, I love working with the customers so I was there for only a short time before they snatched me down into the intern, internal bits of the World Service into an office because I'd managed a business. And I was suddenly working on a computer all day long, you know, selling videos to, uh, you know, the third world. And I'd get we'd get all these lovely little letters, you know, saying, dear Christian mother, please send me a BBC radio. I would, you know, I will pay you when I, you know, I've saved up enough money. And we get this beautiful pleading letters. I mean, they were heartrending, heartrending. But I loved it there. I absolutely loved it. I made some good friends that I've still got now. And I did nothing. I didn't make it. I never wanted to make another hat. I thought this was heaven. <laughs> oh, and so you were still off of hats. I was off hats, completely off hats. And I remember I walked in there, and the and the guys in there. I was there was we had a beautiful an ex ballet dancer who was my boss. She was absolutely sweet. And these two guys that were working in there, you know, we sold videos and DVDs and tapes, a lot of tapes, and we sold all the, we sold all the sound effects. The BBC sound had this huge £2,000 sound effects set of CDs. We sold those, we sold all sorts of things. And um, I remember they used to, the guys used to moan from 9am to 5 about going away and starting a business on their own. And I'd say, do it! Just go and do it. I said, so "All you've got to do, you just can't. You can't. Both of you could do it." One of them wanted to be in the music biz. I said, "Do it." And they, because they couldn't understand why I could stop work, having a business and want to work in an office. You know, I was doing it the other way around. <laughs> anyway, so I, <laughs> you've done that. you have <laughs> done <just> that box. <laughs> I've done that box. Now it, it was just I had such fun there, and Christmas was wonderful. I remember because. We all used to gravitate to the Chilean offices because they had the best music, <laughs> and then and I was there for the seventieth. Um, John Timpson was the was the um, managing director, and he was the most lovely man, so approachable and friendly. And we the seventieth um, anniversary of the World Service happened while I was there, and we had a huge party in the main in the big main courtyard with sound systems, you know, 10 foot high in all four corners, with all different music, all different types of from all, di- all over the world. It was the most wonderful night. And and then, not long, and I'd started te- all my holidays then, I used to go up to Liverpool and start teaching. And I'd never done teaching before. And Janet used to, I was teaching in this great big gym. I just did a block, and then I did another block. The first block... I, we, and we were in a gym, and it's a lovely college, it was called Mary Fletcher then, but then it was called Liverpool City College, I think, after that. And I had no idea how much I knew. No idea. And the students, anything they asked me, I could answer. And I would sort of think, oh my God, yeah, oh, why well, you just do this? If we do this, it'll work like this. And I did that to every, each one of them was making something different. They took, a, they took a show on. The students did a show and dressed it completely from beginning to end. I don't know if they were... I think they were for, for, for going into the theatre. And anything they made, I just knew how to do it. And I thought, this is... You know, it was sort of nice. I really enjoyed the students. I loved the teaching. I loved them finding out that they could do something, that they could do what you were teaching them they could actually make the hat that you were teaching them to do. I knew all the answers. It was the weirdest thing. And then and and I sort of got into that, and I really enjoyed it. And then something quite strange happened. Um, I was walking down somewhere in town, and I met Mary Husband, who was a designer from the Beeb from years before, and she'd done the two Ronnies and lots of big, huge musicals. And she said, "Where have you been?" <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I, I just, I was ready then. I suddenly, I just, I don't know what it was. And she, she was doing something with Twiggy. I made Twiggy three cloches, and I was in cos props with John Bright, who you know was an old friend as well, and I, you know, known years before. And suddenly it was just, way, well, hey, and it was, it was nice. And I started, and I was introduced by an old, old hatty friend of mine, uh, Mark Wheeler, who was, had been hatting all along in theatre, and he took me to Regent's Park Open Air Theatre and shared a show with me. Oh. It nice. was <laughs> so, it was so nice of him to, you know, half the money, he was going to get half the money, and he just let me do the other half what a gift it was incredible and and then i went to the park every year after that and we did it every summer we'd start in early early summer and we got so blasé. We'd have the designer between us. And and Mark and I would be on either side of the designer in the wardrobe at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. And, and he'd say, oh, well, I'm doing that now. I said, no, I want to do that one. And the designer wouldn't have a, <laughs> wouldn't have a word to say because we were sort of sharing out the designs. And it, that was a, a very, very nice, very nice time. And then people, or oh, a lot of people, designers and people I'd work with, they were either dead or... You know they were they'd moved on a lot of them had moved on, so I had to start again with lots of new young designers and it was really exciting because I'd sort of slowly, 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 I had long spells, but I didn't have anything and then I would slowly get to know more people, and then people would remember me from before, and i would word got round here and there, and i got I started to do more theater then. And then I did um, a big super one. Was Guys and Dolls at the Piccadilly. That was two and a half years with Ewan McGregor and someone else. And then I also I can't remember who was the leading. Oh, it was it was one of the girls from um, one of the act- American actress from uh, Sex in the City. I can't remember. Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, Jane. I can't remember who it was now, but she was terribly nervous actually about coming onto the English stage. Um, but uh, and then I did what else I did um, another early one was I, I'd, I'd met i met Consulata Boyle who, who did The Queen I think she got an Oscar for The Queen did she oh, get wow. an Oscar for it um, and she was doing um, a little something called Serpent's Kiss again with Ewan McGregor actually and with Greta Scacci and owen oh, fabio Drake was in it too who i worked with years and years and years before so i suddenly i suddenly was doing owen oh, um double barreled not i uh, and i was i was suddenly doing working with people i'd worked with before and doing very different film suddenly was was more it, it was more precise than what I'd remembered it being before. You know, people were, were... The way the designers were working, it was becoming very, very correct. Very, you know... The, oh, the, the, period, the period pieces had The to period be... pieces had to be... You know, there was suddenly really strict correctness. And what, what suddenly I, you realised it was going on, which was happening more and more, was that the principles would have something very slightly quirky or they'd have different colours or... They'd have you know they'd be very slightly different, which would draw in the the audience of today, but everybody else, coachmen you know butlers, brothers and sisters would all be dead on so mm. the dead the dead on period got more and more dead on you know the research was incredible, people researched every single cranny and sort you know this is before the internet um you know to try and find exact sort of period pieces. They would go to the ends of the earth to find, you know, beautiful bits of lace, beautiful ribbons. I work with incredible ribbons, laces, fabrics, old fabrics which drop apart when you try and sew them. Uh-oh. And you know, but making such beautiful things out of them, you know, because you were working with Really sort of Victorian, I'd be working with Victorian silk some of the time. Wow. So now, the the designers and the. The f- designers were sourced, all, were this sourced all this stuff. So I'd always be given everything that I was making them with. Wow. And then, and so this, so I was still doing, I was still doing, I wasn't doing big, I would occasionally do a big principal, but mostly I'd be doing sort of 30 policemen for Golden Compass or, you know, I'd be doing a lot of sort of as well as type actors you know which were um they just weren't principals. okay and then um quite and, and then I I came across um how did I come across I, probably through Cosprop um they were doing the Duchess which was with Kira Knightley and Ray Fiennes and Hayley Atwell and Michael O'Connor was the designer, and I hadn't worked with him before, and um, he asked me to make a big, huge... Uh, Kira was wearing this... At one point, she's... Um, as the Duchess of Devonshire, she was um, pol- uh, into the politics of her lover, which was... Um, no, it wasn't her lover, was it? Mm. Can't remember. Anyway, she had a big fox hat on because he's he the person she was helping out was called Fox, and it had big fox tails on it. And I made this great big sort of Georgian hat, and he absolutely fell in love with it, and Kira loved it as well. It looked very nice. Is that the one downstairs that says Fox yeah, on the front? Yeah, that's well, that's a repro. Uh, okay. And um, he went. He dropped the Cosprop hatter and took me on to do all Kira's hats and Haley's hats. And it was a big moment of changing over from, you know, to do really big principles. And he won an Oscar for the costumes, which was just sensational. Wow. Um, and then I just started doing, and then I started doing more and more big principles, including um, Meryl uh, Street with... Uh, Consulata Boyle, who I'd done with the Serpent's Kiss with years before, asked me to make um Merrill's hats for when she played Margaret Thatcher in um The Iron Lady. And that was interesting and, and fitting her was was meeting her was really very enthralling. She was very, very sweet indeed. Um and then also it, that just led on to more and more principles Making you know, different, different type of. I worked with Sandy um, doing the other Berlin Girl with um, Scarlett Johansson. Oh, um, I have that one at home. I'll have to go watch it again. That was, that was a nice job too, because Sandy has an incredibly um, sophisticated but very beautiful color palette always, and it's always very strong in her films she 's gone three oscars for for costume design. Wow. she did uh, the kings of the gangs of new york and and she's with um who was the lead in that um, i can't remember but she just has a very strong palette and and with this had really quite bright colors and I did a lot of i did nearly all the principles in that, which was Gables for christian scott thomas and um the two girls, the two Berlin sisters and Henry, and who was Eric Banner, and um, a lot, a lot of stuff. So all all this time now I'm I'm doing sort of small principles, big principles and commercials. I became sort of known for being able to sort of work things out. The commercials companies always ask them weird things, you know, like I did a bowler hat with... With that's meant to be a combination of bowler hat and a flying helmet. So you have the goggles on the top of the brim and then leather stuff underneath, and you know, things like that with the commercials because they, they, they're, they're sort of brief is usually a very strange mixture. You know, it, it's it's just a one off hat, but it can often be quite complicated. But you get to put all your years of creativity in. You and can experience. suddenly discover how to do things. And I worked on Pan. Which is just I think that's has that come has that been released yet? I'm not sure. I don't think it has yet. No, it hasn't. Um and that's where they had so big the well someone in the wardrobe at Pinewood had uh worked out this great big huge nuns headdress for Kathy Burke and the nuns in some some convent somewhere, but they couldn't make them stay in place. And so one of the girls uh, one of the costume assistants Andrea Cripps, uh said, Jane, help. And so I, she sent me lots of references and one reference, one tiny little photograph of about four or five nuns waiting for the Pope to get off a plane. So it's the back view of the nuns. And I could see that it was they, they had a sort of horseshoe shape that must have been kept in place with something. So I machined a wire coat hanger Round the back of this nun, and it stayed in place. You could kick it round the room, (laughs) and it stayed in place. It was, it was a. But then I landed up doing all the nuns, which was a big job because they were huge, and you had to sort of bond. They have the white in the film is not white; it's like a duck egg blue because it comes out snow white in the filming. Oh, that's interesting. If you had white, it wouldn't. It would have been. I don't know what happens. Kind of goes cream or or something. Yes, it goes. So it. I had to have specially dyed cotton in great huge lumps and I had to peg everything out on the ironing board because if you didn't peg it out, when you bond, you know, you run the iron and the fabric runs in front of it, you couldn't have that, you had to have it make sure each layer that before you could even put the iron on it was taut like a drum on the ironing board so everything was pegged out, completely staked out. And then, only then could I iron it down.
0: Well, you have a massive ironing board down yeah, there. Is that, that a
1: custom? Yeah, no, this board? is very custom made. This is a great slab of wood which is screwed to, my, to any old ironing board because I want it big enough for a big brim. Okay, yeah, so I was looking at that earlier when this is a
0: really <laughs> unique shape and size. And it has
1: a point at one end. It and, does! <laughs> and so that, you keep the ironing board point, but then you, you just have this wide bit in the middle. Also, I'm often ironing, I mean, when you're ironing buckram and things together, you're ironing, you might be ironing three layers of buckram together to make a lovely thin shell. And if you do that, you're actually weighing the iron, you know, you're leaning on the ironing board very heavily. Mm.
0: So to get the steam yeah, or the, the yeah, heat and pressure the pressure, and the pressure
1: to... you're actually pressing the buckram together quite okay. heavily. So, um, that, I, that's another reason why my ironing boards have to be pretty solid. So... That's why yeah, I have this great big lump of wood underneath. Well,
0: I saw the picture of the nun hat with the big wings on it on your website. Yeah, so that
1: that was one of them. That was that was, um, and I, it was it's terrific fitting them at Pinewood because one of the nuns came. She'd come from makeup, and she had her her. She was meant to be very scary. She had a little skinny face. She was really terrific looking, and she they'd put her false teeth in the front, so she had these kind of ratty teeth in the front. <laughs> Long teeth that stuck out, and then she had wire, little wire glasses. She looked absolutely horrible, and she kept pulling sort of gruesome faces. It was very funny, but this is to show the director when you know, with the with the headdress on as well. She looked absolutely fabulous. Really, squeaky horrible. The second going, this section is going to be on your teaching. Um, I went from Liverpool and then I met an old friend who invited me to teach at London College of Fashion in the top of Boxer Street. And I went from there. I started doing Northbrook College. I taught at Bournemouth. Little blocks of teaching for uh, period hat making. And at Bournemouth, I designed... They had no blocks that were really suitable. They had a couple of domes, so I designed them a complete set of wooden blocks that would be good for period hatting. I think they had about six or eight blocks. Um, And then I started teaching at Wimbledon in in, in the summer school, and small blocks in the term time. I then went to Rose Bruford... And did small blocks of teaching there. And Kensington and Chelsea. These are mostly connected with people I knew. I got the jobs because I was teaching, I was working with people. I knew, I'd picked up friends along the way and they invited me to teach. And I was doing about six London colleges at one time. uh, All just in blocks of teaching along the way. And meanwhile, at the, uh, when I'd first been looking around for a job, I'd walked into Morley College and I had a picture of my shop, my little James Miss Straw Hats postcard, and I went to see the um, the head of the uh, fashion department and she said, no, we haven't got anything, but I'll have your card. She pinned it on her wall opposite her telephone and six years later she rang me up. <laughs> six so years from, okay from 1990 I sold the shop in 1990 and then in 1996 she invited me to said because that's how long it took for the room to come free that everything that was happening in the fashion department for the for for there to be a room free where she could start a new course wow because they didn't have any hatting and they had the most wonderful head of fashion department called Janet Brown who's now gone to the v and uh she took me on. I had no qualifications for teaching or hat-making. i just had uh, 23 years' experience. And, and uh, so she just took me on trust. She was very, very sort of... It was quite bold of her to just... She really didn't have anything except what I'd done, what i told her. And I started at Morley College with the bare tables, brown paper and scissors and that's all we did we just we made 19th century bonnets and hats from buckram and wire and fabrics we had no blocks at all we had one little dome that's all they had and uh, about quite a few years later six about four, 19, about 4 years later they got the first set of blocks that i designed for them and then they've gone from there and i've been teaching there ever since and it took another few years before i did the second day so i started off with the first morning from 10 till 1 and now i do another morning from 10 to 1 i do two mornings there 10 to 1 teaching one's contemporary hat making and one's the theatre hat making and i get left i get overspill from the colleges for the theatre hat making and this term we've got someone from the national theatre costume store who's going to be able to renovate all the period huts there now that she knows how to do it. Oh, okay. So that's very useful. And I used to get uh, students from, especially from LCF, because they'd cut out all their millinery classes. They had none left. And when I was first teaching there, I used to do about 10 weeks with them, and it landed up with three days. So they just cut back, oh, cut good. back, cut back, cut back till there was nothing left. So, there's there. nothing left. so but, Morley's yes. one of the few places that we'll do that I teach which is which will have theatre hatting on a regular basis.
0: And the half, the classes appear to be <coughs> fairly well subscribed.
1: Yes, they are. They fill up very quickly and also now I do a summer school at Morley which is uh block carving. So you can carve blocks. I've for years and years, carve my own blocks. Because if you're working on Harry Potter and they want wizards, you can't sort of suddenly find a wizard block. So I used to have to carve my blocks, um, and I've done that for years. So, for instance, Harry Potter is a good example because I did all the the legal hats. I think it's in the one, the fifth one, um, that Amelda Staunton and they all wear when they're on the the panel and. I wouldn't have been able to modify the shape without having a block underneath the shape that they wanted. So they start off. They, first of all, the, the costume assistants come to me and they want a sort of tall shape. Then the designer says, hey, no, that's not quite right. Make it wider. So I did a wider one. Then it got wider and wider until they were wider and taller than they'd started out at. So I'd each time carved a new shape. And you carve them out of polystyrene? I carve them out of polystyrene, which is quick, easy. And I use my blocks for 10, 15 years. And you just, you just have to make sure you don't put anything chemical next to them or hot. Oh. So, you know, the, the blocking is easy. You can pull shapes over them and they're very strong. Um, but you just don't pierce them with anything. I'm looking forward to that class this summer. It's really, it's really good. And people, everyone can carve. Everybody can carve. It's, it's a natural thing that humans do. They make, you know, they've carved little things from time, from the beginning of when they carved and made tools for themselves. And they you can, it's the opposite of having terracotta or clay, because so instead of putting it on, which you do for the clay, you take it off. So you just, you can't put it back once you <laughs> cut it off. So you have to be careful about how you how you carve but it's not difficult once you have the profile you do you carve each profile in turn back front side to side and you find people find very quickly that they can visualize their hat that they're making not inside but as they go along they can they it's a natural thing for them to do to carve away until they get to their shape inside so it can't, the shape kind of reveals itself? Mm, as it's almost, yes, almost. And it's, it's, it's another thrilling thing to teach because people suddenly take off and they go. They, they make the first one and it's kind of lumpy and maybe kind of a little bit odd and a bit tall here and a bit short there. And then suddenly, I mean, I've had all sorts of people, I don't want to sound sort of ageist, but, you know, anyone can, they, they carve six blocks you know, crowns, two brims, three crowns, four crowns. You know, it's just incredible once they take off. It's really exciting. Oh, I am looking forward to taking yeah.
0: that class. <laughs> well, Jane, this has been absolutely an amazing afternoon. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your journey through hatting. And and, uh, and I look forward to getting more and seeing more of your hats and movies in the days to come. Thank you. This was Leanne Frederick with Hat and Around. I tremendously enjoyed hearing Jane Smith's journey of hatting, and I hope you did also. Check back with Hat and Around as I have more interviews to come. And remember, interesting people wear hats.